no matter where you are in your own financial journey, don't be stressed out about where you are. Be grateful for where you already are because you already have so much more than so many other people. And just listening to this means you have an opportunity that many people don't. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we're going to be re-airing our most downloaded episode. This is way back in 2019 with Grant Sabatier, The Proven Path to Financial Freedom. But before we do that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody, for those who listened to the episode last week, you probably heard like my crazy 30-something hours in Vegas. It was just nuts back to back to back that followed into a work trip. Well, I kept the kind of torturous schedule going because when I landed on Thursday from my work trip, after some delays, I finally got home about 6.45 p.m., unpacked my bag, packed another bag, hit the road for about a three and a half hour drive up kind of northeast of Dallas to stay with a friend because we had this concert that we had booked a long time ago. So we had a concert Friday night, didn't want to have to try to sneak the drive in in the work day and make that hectic. So we drove up Thursday night, did a big concert Friday night, hung out a little bit Saturday morning, then made the three and a half hour trek back to Austin and then actually took Sunday to kind of just chill. I mean, we had to get the house kind of in order because we did have an Airbnb guest coming that afternoon, but it was a much more chill day and I'm looking forward to a week where I have a consistent sleep schedule, consistent food schedule, consistent everything schedule, just to kind of get back on track. How about you, Cody? Well, I am in the process of getting back to the United States. So we checked out of our final villa in Bali. This was like the quote unquote bougiest. It was $345 a night, which would get you like a crappy hotel in New York City. But this place it was almost like you had butlers. They're so nice. They cater to you. You'd just be like sitting by the pool. They'd bring you whatever you want, whatever food, whatever drink. It was an amazing experience. It was probably, like I said, the nicest place that we've stayed so far in Bali. We had like the first day down in the south, and then we had one in the central part, Ubud. Now we're up in Munduk. It's kind of in the forest, if you will, up in the mountains. So we have this like beautiful nature view. They have these infinity pools. And like I said, just an amazing staff, amazing food. It's actually on a working coffee plantation. So a lot of the obviously coffee, but vegetables and even the meats are from local farmers. So like everything is just so fresh here. We really enjoyed the end of the trip. And then we have a short little layover in Singapore so we can get some sleep. And then we take the big flight back to the USA, an 18-hour and 50-minute flight from Singapore to JFK. And then we drive home to Massachusetts. But Justin, that's enough about us. Let's talk about the guest for today, Grant Sabatier. So Grant is someone who we go way back. He's been a friend and a mentor to me since 2018. He honestly kind of changed a lot of the ways that I did things, a lot of the ways that I thought about financial independence. And in this episode, we dig into everything. It is a little bit of a longer episode. Usually we're around 45 minutes. This one's like an hour 20 because Grant is just bringing so much value, so much good content. We run through his story, how he had like a million side hustles. It was almost to a point of burning out. He had like 20 different side hustles going on, making 300K in his 20s, ends up becoming Fi shortly after with $1.25 million in the bank and a bunch of passive income. But more importantly, beyond the money, we talk about like your why. What's the reason you're chasing financial independence? Is it aligned with your goals? Are you sacrificing things on the journey just because you want to get to some arbitrary number? So not only are you going to get a bunch of income building and expense reducing tactics in this episode, you're also going to get a ton of mindset. 
Yeah, Cody, the mindset pieces were definitely a huge takeaway for me. I think the biggest thing is Grant was just honest that, you know, if he had to do it over again, he might would slow down just a little bit. He also really pushes people to just kind of stop and look at your life from the outside because sometimes we get in it and we just kind of keep doing what we're doing. But to look at it from the outside and think, is this direction we I really want to be moving? And if not, try to think about some steps you can do to move in the right direction. And then on more of a tactical front, I really liked how he talked about how the future currency was going to be skills. And I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think as we continue to go on, it's going to be less and less about what degree you got from what college. And it's going to be much more about what are your skill sets? What capabilities you bring? Like, what can you tangibly show that you can do? Like Cody said, this is one of our most downloaded episodes ever. So I'm sure you're going to have a lot of good takeaways. You're going to want to look up some more information on Grant and hopefully share this episode with someone. You can do all that over at thefyshow.com slash grant2. That's thefyshow.com slash grant and then the number two. Take it away, Grant. I grew up always doing what I was supposed to do, you know, did well in school, you know, worked really hard and ended up going to college and then bouncing around four jobs after college and never quite finding that right fit. And I really wanted to, and I just went from crappy job to crappy job. I got laid off twice and ended up finding myself back home living with my parents at the age of 24. And I had $2.26 left to my name. And I actually did the quick calculation back then. And I realized I traded over 4,700 hours of my life for about $85,000 after taxes. And I had not only nothing left, but I was actually in credit card debt at the time. So I was starting, you know, Here, I went to a good school. Everyone's like, oh, Grant's going to do really great things. And then literally, I was the only one of all of my friends, of all probably of my parents' kids that had to move back home with their parents. And they told me that I could only stay for three months. It was a very intense three months. I don't know what would have actually happened if I didn't get a job in that period. I don't think they would have kicked me out. And they also said they weren't going to give me any money. So I was like eating turkey sandwiches out of the fridge and sleeping in the same bed I slept in as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> and like I went out, I remember, in the garage and like dug out my old Nintendo. You know, I was like I was like going backwards in life. It's like where you don't want to be. And, you know, my parents didn't really say much to me, but I could tell there was just extreme sort of disappointment on their faces, you know, when we'd sit down to dinner and I'd sent out over 200 resumes and hadn't gotten a single call back. This is in 2010. So it was a tough hiring situation and economy. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I was really starting from square zero and and felt like a complete failure and easily one of the top five worst feelings that I've had in my entire life. So that's, that's kind of where I started. And then in August, 2010, I just clearly didn't understand anything about money. So I did a simple Google search, power of Google, best money books, and your money or your life popped up number one. And that's just really luck of the draw and popped up number one. I ordered it. Number two was David Vox, Automatic Millionaire. I ordered that too. And I read Your Money or Your Life and it completely just not only changed the way I thought about money, but it completely transformed really my entire worldview. It shook me that hard. And I was like, okay, my takeaway is actually very different than what Vicky Robin wanted the takeaway to be. And I was like, okay, if I'm trading my life energy for money, 
I need to make as much money as possible. She, I, every time I say that, like with her in interviews, she always just shakes her head, you know, but it's like, that was my, that was my takeaway. And so I was like, okay, how do I actually make as much money as possible? And everything that I found was spammy and, you know, just kind of those scammy, like, oh, you know, make a million dollars with real estate and do this and do that. And I was like, how do I actually do this? And so I set two seemingly unrealistic goals to save a million dollars and then retire as quickly as possible. And retire to me at that time meant like, okay, I'm going to find something, even if I don't like to do it, and I'm going to do it just to escape. And those are the two goals I set. And then was doing another Google search couple weeks later and I saw a Google mobile ad. So this is when Google mobile ads were pretty new. And I saw the one and I was like, what's this? And so I researched, I literally Googled Google mobile ads. And then actually the first thing that popped up was a news item about how demand for people who to run Google campaigns was increasing, was projected to increase. It was like a press release put out by this company, eMarketer. And I read it and I was like, oh, there are jobs here. And then I learned that I could get certified by Google for free. And in about 30 days, I watched all their YouTube videos, got certified. And the first job that I applied to to run Google campaigns, I got. And so that was kind of my escape plan. I didn't know if I'd like running Google campaigns. All I knew is that there was demand for it and I could get certified for free. And all it literally took was having that certification on my LinkedIn profile and on my resume and the job that I applied to, there was so much demand. The hiring manager, they knew a little bit about it, but just the fact that I was certified was all that I really needed. I hadn't run a campaign ever. I hadn't done it at all. And so, yeah, got the job, was making 50K, and the rest is kind of history. So when you when you wound up back at your parents' house and you've got the, you know, the $2 and change in your bank account, was that more of a symptom of just really poorly paying jobs, a luscious lifestyle? Like what, what led you to that point? I mean, a whole confluence of things. So the first job that I got out of college, I was actually making decent money. I was making about 42000 which was pretty good for a job coming out of college then. But it was like, you know, I was 22. is more money than I'd ever seen in my life. You know, so I went out and got a really nice apartment with one of my friends. You know, we went out, worked hard, play hard, spent a bunch of money. I bought like all this musical equipment. You know, I was just like buying everything possible. I bought like over a hundred Nintendo games. I bought like, <laughs> like the old school ones, you know, I was buying just like, you know, I, I bought like a bunch of vintage furniture, you know, I was just spending the money. I was having a good time, but I was like compensating because I hated my job so much that I was just like spending. And that's what I thought you did. So in that case, you know, I wasn't, I didn't invest in any of the 401ks, until the end, the fourth job that I had had. So I kind of knew a little bit like, okay, now I need to start saving. But once I had had like $2,000 in my 401k, then I got laid off at this company. And I was just, I actually ended up withdrawing that $2,000, even though they told me like, don't do this, don't do this. But I needed the money. At that time, I got laid off. I actually ended up going to Africa. This is something that not a lot of people know. I went to Africa with my wife immediately after I got fired, spent all most of all the money I had, sold my van, my Volkswagen camper. That got me about $10,000 that I ended up spending all that. And then I was broke. Like, then I was like, completely broke and had to move back home. 
with my parents. So I had some fun up until this point. But the number one thing, now it's amazing that like you know, guys like you are so young and you know that financial independence is possible and that people are doing it and you can get started so much earlier. The only person that I'd ever heard about ever in my entire life that had retired, quote unquote, early was this family friend named Jim. And I write about him in the book. And he was someone my parents always talked about. So I know it meant something to them. And he retired at 49 and he retired mainly because, you know, he'd saved money and he got an inheritance. So the idea of retiring early, like this was just like, it was more realistic. I would believe you that like I would go to the moon, you know what I mean? It's like, so it's amazing now that so many people know that it's possible, but it wasn't back then. And then even when I started, you know, I've said this before, I didn't like, so I read the book, Joe Dominguez, In Your Money, Your Life, retired, reached FI at 30. And that was the first time where I was like, whoa, someone did this. But even still, he had done it like almost 35 years before or something. You know what I mean? So I didn't know another person out there who was doing this. And I actually didn't find my first FI blog, which was the Mad Scientist blogger, until two and a half years into my journey. So for the first two and a half years, I was cruising alone. And I was making it up as I went. And I did most things right. I clearly knew that I needed to save as much as early and often as I could, that really clicked for me, you know, because I didn't just read Your Money, Your Life. I read Your Money, Your Life, and then I read Automatic Millionaire, and then I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then I read The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need, and then I read the first Bogleheads book. I was accumulating knowledge really quickly on my own and kind of piecing it together. But once I got two and a half years in and found Brandon, I was just like, ah. <laughs> like I was seriously like, what? And the only reason I found him is because I Googled like financial independence because I'd looked for people before and I couldn't find them. And so, yeah, I was making it up as I went, which actually I feel very grateful that I had to do that because I really prided myself on living very differently than all of my friends and my parents and that power of like, I'm living extremely differently than everyone around me. I fetishize that a lot too. I think that like being part and doing something on your own can give you more motivation than just even following someone else's footsteps. So I had a lot of energy from that. So Grant, I kind of want to hop into some of your irregular habits and kind of oddball tendencies. But first, I want to dive in quickly to just you went from being a kid at 24 with basically zero dollars in the bank and then by 30, you're a millionaire. And somewhere in between there, you had like 15 income streams you just found so many different ways to make money. And I'd love if you could kind of just talk to some of those, how you found them, and just how you had the grit and tenacity to pursue them and have the energy. Yeah, so that's an important thing to note. I think energy, let's start there. Clearly, for anyone listening, I mean, I, at the age of 24, had, and I have a lot of energy now, I, at the age of 24, was had like 3x the energy I have now. So it was like, I was always just like three steps ahead of myself, like frenetic energy. And so I was able to capitalize on that. You know, I could still stay up till 3 a.m. and get up at seven and just cruise, you know. And I spent probably, I was thinking about this, like it took me five years and three months to become FI from, from that day when I was broke. And I probably only took off like less than 20 like Sundays or something that entire time. Like it was not, even when I was like on vacation, I was still online building sites, working, learning. I mean, the cool thing is like, I felt kind of like 
snowball going down a hill because I was like acquiring new information and new skills. And I was like packing it all in as I was going. And the cool thing is like, I was often acquiring a skill as someone was paying me for it. And so that's how I learned to build WordPress websites. I, I knew a tiny bit about it, but you know, I got someone, a, a lawyer to pay me $500. And then that's why I was like, great, someone's paying me. And then, you know, I spent way more time than I should learning it. But then the next time that I built a site, and this is like pre one click WordPress installation days. This is like, you actually had to like download the theme files and then upload the theme files. And it was like, it was not intuitive. I mean, it was relatively intuitive, but it was not like, it wasn't easy by any means. And then there was like all the plugins were really janky and nothing ever worked and nothing ever fit together. So I had to really figure out, I taught myself like CSS and I was like trying to like fit everything together. And I was doing this on top of, you know, my full-time job on top of making money other ways. Like I was flipping Volkswagen campers and I set up these Craigslist alerts within 300 miles of where I was living. And so like a van of, I remember like a Volkswagen camper would pop up in like Madison, Wisconsin. And I'd be like, okay, wow, great. This is like only $4,000. I could probably sell this for $18,000. How am I going to get to Madison? Or like at one point I was buying and flipping vintage mopeds because in Chicago, everyone would ride around in these 1970s you know, all the hipsters. And I really love them. I still have some to this day, these mopeds. And so I set up a, an alert on Craigslist for the mopeds. And then when they'd come up, you know, I'd like rent a U-Haul van and drive like down into Indiana and fill up my van with mopeds. And then I'd bring them back and I'd tinker with them. And then I'd always get frustrated. And then I'd call my buddy, and I'd take him over to his garage and then he would fix them up and I'd give him a part of the profit. And this was fun because it allowed me to kind of trade up and find, you know, the best moped for me. So now I have like one of the rarest vintage mopeds in the entire world. I still have it. I have not kitted it out to drive in New York City, but in Chicago is always cruising around downtown on my little beautiful cafe racer Pook Magnum 2 moped from 19, 1980. And so like my side hustles were all things that I really enjoyed doing and I was going to do anyway. Domain flipping, that was by far my most profitable one buying and selling domains. I still have over 800 domains. I was literally up last night messaging and then FaceTiming. I FaceTimed someone last night at 2.30 a.m. because I'm trying to buy a domain from them. So this (laughs) is like still to this day, I do this. And so these are things that so much, so much easier to make money doing something that you love. I ended up falling in love kind of with managing Google campaigns for a couple of years. But then once I feel like I'd mastered that, once I like really learn something really well, then I'm just like, okay, on to the next thing. And so, but I was able to monetize my hobbies. So, and I know with some of that work, as you got into, especially, you know, creating your own business, you started having some pretty large paydays. And I'm curious for somebody who's looking at starting a business like that, what is it like mentally to look at something like that and settle on like the true value that you bring to the table? Because I think a lot of times we short sell ourselves and it can be hard thinking like, yeah, I can ask for $100,000 for this single project. I'm worth that. Yeah, it's a great question. So I really kind of in the middle of this fell in love with sales strategy. The simple idea, I think selling is one of the most valuable skill sets that you can have. I think the value of it, the paradox of increased automation, the value of selling is actually going up. And all selling happens on a one-to-one human-to-human level, or at least most of it does, you know, when you're selling, you know, six-figure projects and above. And one of the things that I realized pretty quickly 
was to figure out where I stood and how I was perceived. And so everyone always tries to sell kind of the real value or the market value of something. But oftentimes, like with a website, even back then, selling websites, it's more of a commodity product. And when it's a commodity product, I mean, that means that like there's a lot of people out there selling it. You know, it's hard to differentiate between what I was selling and someone else was selling. And so I really flipped the table and I thought very hard, okay, how are people going to perceive me and how can I best leverage that to make the sale? And the way that I did that, the mindset shift for me was, you know, you had all these in Chicago kind of mid-size and large digital agencies, I could go in and say, okay, I'll do it four times as fast and for half the price. And that's what I did in this law firm, the first $50,000 site I sold. That's exactly what it was. I went and said, hey, you know, I know that I'm young. I know, you know, and young, I have energy. I'm going to over deliver. You're not just another client to me. You know what I mean? 100% satisfaction guarantee. And I went in with a very like, strong understanding of here's how I'm being perceived and everyone wants to get a value. So in that case, $50,000 to me was a ton of money, but it was half of what a big agency was going to charge this law firm. And so if you understand how you're being perceived, it makes it so much easier to sell. The other thing that I figured out is a vast majority of times you're not selling the project. If someone's talking to you and you have the skills to do it, those are table stakes. So being like, I'm really good at this or I'm really good at that, that's really the starting point. Everyone's doing that. But what not everyone's doing is helping to sell value up the food chain. And in a vast majority of cases, your clients or your potential clients, their goal is to get the website built or to get the marketing campaign done or to get something done. But what their real goal inside is, is to look good to their boss. You know, it's to impress their boss's boss. It's to, and the better you are at helping them look good, the more money you're going to make. And so once I realized this, it didn't matter how hard I worked or how busy I was or how many things, like it doesn't matter how late you stay up. Those things are things your client's never going to see. What they're going to know is how you helped them you know, make them look good to their boss. And so I actually then started writing emails that I would include with the project being like, hey, this is what I think you should tell your boss. So I was helping them sell the story. And then I, be I became known for that. So my clients that I had for a long time, they'd be like, hey, Grant, you know, it's that time, you know, I've got to show this to my boss, or I've got to pitch this to my board, what should I say? What should I do? So then I became more of a coach. And the work just became something else. And then my clients trusted me because I always made them look good. And so think whoever you're selling to, you want to make them look good. And that's something just because everyone, a vast majority of people in life, they're, they're selling the same thing and they're competing on the same parameters. It just being like, I'm the best or look at this, or do that, or I did this or I won this is the starting point. Yeah, I mean, what makes you different? Yeah, yeah exactly. And then the better you are at storytelling, the better you're going to be at making money in your life. And storytelling is not just in like how you sell clients. It's in how you talk to your boss. A vast majority of people, they have, they're busy in their lives. They have a lot going on and they don't see what you're doing. They don't see how hard you're working. So the better you are at storytelling, the happier clients are going to be. If you're an employee, the easier it's going to be to get a raise you know, you have to help people see what you're doing and the value that you're adding. And this is the thing that just 
blows my mind is, you know, you see the people who show up like super early in the morning, first at the office and leave last. Like, you know, I've owned a couple companies and had employees and that stuff didn't matter at all to me. And in fact, the people who did that, I was like, why are you doing this? You should be out living your life. <laughs> they thought they were supposed to do it, but I saw right through it. You know, I knew the quality of their work. In fact, they could have come in at 1030 every day. And if the quality of their work was high, I wouldn't have cared. And so just make sure you understand and learn how to read your boss and your company culture and understand what's valued. And if you work for a company, this is the thing too. If you work for a company that only values those things, like showing up and staying later than everyone else, you probably should look for a different company because that's not the mindset that you want to associate yourself with. And that's one of those things too is a lot of people are like really good people. They just get stuck in like toxic work situations that bring them down in so many ways that they don't even realize. But the cool thing is there's a lot, an increasing number of companies out there that are much more open, much more flexible. And I think for lack of a better word, much more human. And that's one of the things that you're starting to see, which is you know really encouraging. So I really want to build a conversation around this perceived value. And I've heard you talk about it a lot. You mentioned it in the book. And I think it's just super important and it's definitely an atypical mindset that you have. And like you said, a lot of people do think it's showing up at 6 a.m., leaving at 10 p.m. That's what gets you the raise. That's what gets you the recognition. That might be true at a lot of companies. But in this shifting economy where jobs are literally changing faster than they've ever been changing, what's something that we can do in the FI community to kind of insulate ourselves against this changing market and have a higher perceived value than something that might get automated out? So I really think that skills are future currency. I think that if you have the choice in a job to make more money or build a new skill, always choose the skill, always. And try to focus on building complementary skill sets. This is one of the things we're taught our whole lives, even when we go to college, to niche down, to specialize. But the future work world, even the world today, actually values, even though it's not explicitly said, they value a diversity of skill sets. Because when you have a diversity of skill sets, it increases the perception of your value. And a simple example is, you know, I have a buddy who works for the EPA and he was working on a project. And because he'd worked with me for a couple of years, he knew how to build websites and he knew all about HTML and he knew, you know, all about those things. And what happened was an opportunity, like a, it's kind of like an opportunity, but a challenge came up where they had to start this new campaign and it was going to take forever to get a government website built and all these things happening. And he was able to stand up, you know, say, I'll build the website. I can do this. And so he built a website for this EPA project on his own because he had the diversity of that skill set because he side hustled with me. And then that increased the perception of his value to his boss. You know, it's like, oh, like he's helpful. He, he knows more. And so this is why I always encourage you, if you work with analytics, learn design. If you work in design, learn analytics. If you work in design, learn how to sell. If you work in analytics, learn how to sell. And the thing is, you know, you could construct like even like a triangle where you could put like the most valuable skill sets in each corner and then lay out what those are 
even when the world tells you you should niche down and specialize in one thing, for example, selling, no matter what you do, selling is going to be valuable. Learning how to sell is going to be extremely valuable. Analytics, learning analytics. You know, I break out on millennial money what I think are the six skills to future-proof yourself, and it's analytics and selling and storytelling and design and branding and coding. You know, and these are the things that like, if you know those, those are like your superhero skill sets because you learn those. And even if your full-time job has nothing to do with those, those give you immense flexibility in life. And so one of the things that I believe we don't know what's going to happen with the economy, with the environment, we're entering into increasingly uncertain times with automation. And so the best way to insulate yourself is by building those diversity of skills. So for example, in my own life, let's say everything went to crap. Like, you know, I could, I could become a graphic designer because I know InDesign and Photoshop, or I could get a job running Google campaigns, or I could get a job running Facebook campaigns, or I could get a job building sites, or I could get a job building scripts, or I could get a job doing logo design or web design or writing white papers, or, you know, it's like, it's an endless number of things. So it's like, I'm a chameleon in that way. And, and I really recommend people are like, oh, well, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to do that is like no longer an excuse in this world. And so that's the thing, insulating yourself from always being able to make money in some way, then you really no longer have to rely on a paycheck. And it makes life fun because I really believe in the future, we're all going to function more like our own autonomous brands. And, you know, you're going to function kind of like an island. And that's tough. There's a real challenge there. And this is my one thing is that no one really talks about kind of the downside of being a digital nomad or the downside of being an entrepreneur. I thought in a lot of cases, like being an entrepreneur in the way that I developed was really crappy. And that's why I stopped doing it. That actually further accelerated my path to FI. I think that owning a digital marketing agency and growing it like I did, that ended up being very stifling for me. I was no longer doing the work that I enjoyed that I started off doing, which, you know, and I was spending all my time dealing with employee issues and management issues and legal issues. And that's not the kind of stuff that's interesting at all. And you have to do it to some extent, but you don't have, you know, there's all these success stories like, I was a solopreneur and I got one yesterday from someone. It's like, oh, you know, I was making 5K a month and, you know, it was just me and my laptop. And now I've got 41 employees and it was like a picture of his Christmas party. And I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> and yes, he's making, yes, he's making a million dollars a month, but there's a huge trade off there because once you're responsible for health insurance for other people and all these things. So I hope that, you know, entrepreneurship is great, but I, I really do believe there's a right and a wrong way to specifically go from full-time employee to side hustle to solopreneur to full entrepreneur. You know, there's kind of that progression. And I think there's a right and a wrong way to do that. And I often see people going the wrong way in that case. And it's, it's not lost on me. Even in the FI community, I see people taking much bigger risks in their life without a proof of concept. You don't need a full plan but I see a lot of people who've like jumped ship and they either have to go back to work or they're really stressed out 
half of the freelancers I talk to that quit their jobs to be a VA or a proofreader, all that stuff's like really, really romanticized or even a blogger. Half of them are like so stressed out and they can't, you know, either pay their rent or they, they don't know where it's going to go. And so I really, I really have a huge heart for, you know, helping. One of the first posts I ever wrote on Millennial Money was, are you an entrepreneur? And at the end of the post, I think I say something like most of you aren't. And if you're not, that's okay. And just that doesn't mean that you can't side hustle, but being an entrepreneur is something very different than just side hustling. You know, when you talked about not having that excuse anymore, if you say like, I just don't know how to do something, I kind of wanted to pull on that a little bit more because, you know, our education system, you know, our traditional education system seems so far behind and you see all these people with all this student debt and you can tell that you've kind of figured a lot of that out as far as amassing skills and making yourself valuable. But if, if you had, you know, if you had a child who was, a senior in high school and you're setting them down, what would you tell them and advise them as far as their educational outlook and traditional college and what kind of path they should go down and and how they figure all that out? We'll be right back after this. Overwhelmed by all the hats you wear in life? Listen in as Eric Fisher talks with productivity experts as they share how they implement practical productivity strategies in their personal and professional lives exploring all aspects of productivity and its true end goal, living a meaningful life, which is something we focus a ton on on The Fi Show. For more than a decade, Eric Fisher has sat down with productivity experts, authors, and creatives as they share their insights on how to implement productivity strategies in both your professional and personal life. The goal? To help you gain perspective, practical knowledge, and productivity insights for living a whole life that goes beyond the to-do list. Check out the incredibly engaging conversations with Eric and his guests every week, wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's a good question. Very hard to, most 18 year olds don't know what they want to do for the rest of their life. If they do support them a hundred percent and say, okay, you want to be whatever you want to be, give yourself like a five to seven year time clock. You know, you can make an insane number of mistakes in your life the first you know, from 18 to 25, and it's not really going to set you back. I mean, obviously you don't want to get like put in jail, uh, <laughs> but like, but like a vast majority of the things you can do, the risk reward scenario is very pro reward in that case. And so, you know, even in the example, Cody leaving his job, you know, you're 22 making like for you, like high, high reward, low risk, because, you know, you don't have kids, you don't have a lot of stuff, you like, you already have a lot of skill, like in that case, it's pro reward. So 18 to 25 year olds, I think we put way too much pressure on them to figure out what they want to do. We should just be like, yo, you don't know, go to college, figure it out. For those people that have it kind of figured out, or for certain types of of people, you know, and this is where I diverge from kind of the traditional college hacking narrative. You know, I went to like the number five school in the country. So I went to an elite school. It was very expensive. I got academic money, but it was very expensive for me to go, but it was a hundred percent worth it. You know, the doors that it's unlocked, the opportunities, the level of education at like the top 30 schools in the country it's a different type of experience. And I often think it's worth it. Even that being said, like mid-tier private schools, often it's a hit or miss. It's kind of what you get out of it. So I have all these strategies and theories around depending upon what you want to do and what tier of college. But if you can get into one of the top schools, even if it costs a lot of money, it's often going to be worth it, the net value over your lifetime. 
even if you don't know what you want to do. If you're not going to go to one of those schools, then take some pressure off of yourself and go to a more affordable option. So yeah, 18-year-olds, don't put too much pressure on them. That's the thing. 18, you're like supposed to be exploring and figuring out how to live and, you know, really, truly living. Like those are the best, not the, I wouldn't say they're the best years of your life, but I definitely think there's an energy there that I wish, you know, I talk to 18 year olds and they're also stressed out about their future. And it's like, yo, like just do everything that you want to do while you're young and just like, don't stress too much. You know, we put way too much pressure on younger people. In fact, a vast majority, like, statistically, a vast majority of the most sort of traditionally successful people in the world didn't figure out what they wanted to do until they're 25 or later. And oftentimes the people that thought they did, then they look back with regret because they like, you know, you got plenty of time to fit into the mold. The other thing is I would encourage an 18-year-old to learn how to define success for themselves. That was something I didn't know how to do. I didn't learn how to do, but I'm very passionate about figuring out how to encourage and support 18-year-olds in in learning how to define success for themselves. I think the cool thing about the FI movement and everything that we're doing is it's poking holes in the traditional way that people live. And everyone's like, oh, well, that's so extreme or that's so different. (laughs) But to me, all that FIRE means, all that FI means is living life on your own terms. Because clearly when you look at all the data, everything that you're supposed to do doesn't work. I mean, that's what all the data says. 69% of people have less than $1,000 saved. 70% of people work you know, 35 to 40, 40 hours a week at a job that they're not engaged in, that doesn't make them happy. You know, they're spending the best years of their life you know, for a biweekly paycheck. They're unhappy. They're stressed out. And it's like clearly that model just doesn't work. And so... I'm encouraged that now, because this is getting more mainstream, people are seeing that there are different ways to live and that you don't have to accept status quo. And when you don't have to accept status quo, that's incredibly empowering, incredibly empowering, because you realize that you actually have control over your life and your freedom and where you want to go. Some system doesn't. You know what I mean? You have a lot more power. And that's the cool thing. I, I do see a lot more you know, younger people just seeming to be able to kind of take a little bit more risk, which is awesome. So I kind of want to talk about what you just said, the 69% of people having less than $1,000 in the bank. And that's just a harsh reality for so many families. They just can't accumulate wealth. And I'm curious, I know it's probably going to be a scenario, scenario, case by case type of thing, but your thoughts on earning more income versus spending less? A huge, huge percentage of the personal finance industry advice, everything you read, it's the same stuff that's been been said for 25 years over and over and over again. And if it worked, then people would be in a different scenario. And what I mean by that is I'd say, I don't even know the number, but a vast majority of what's written is like, here's how to cut back. Here's how to budget. Here's, you know, and we've talked about how it's often those small purchases that give you the most joy in your life. And so here we're like confused, like Americans are confused about their money. And then they start researching money a little bit. And the advice they get is like complete crap, you know, and it's just like cut all those things that make you happy. And then they're like, I don't want to do that. And so they never end up doing anything. And so I think that changing the narrative around do the things you love, do what makes you happy, do what brings you joy, and then get your money together. And here's how you do it. 
I think that the scarcity mindset around budgeting is just an epidemic. Also, the scarcity mindset around debt. You know, so I was on you know a popular news show this morning, and they just wanted me to come on and talk about student loan debt. I said, "Great, I'll talk about that." I got on there. They asked me one question, and I immediately pivoted. And I said, "You know what? I think that people worrying about their debt is one of the biggest things that hold people back." when it comes to money management. And the important question isn't how should I pay down my debt? It's how can I make more money? Because if you have $40,000 in student loan debt and you're making 50K and you do all the calculators and it's like, you're going to pay off your loan in 19 years. And you're like, oh gosh, that's so long. And then you pay the minimum payment. And so many people think that they can't invest until they pay down their debt, which obviously is not true and terrible advice. And then they have this debt that they're carrying around like an anchor on their leg. And they're like, oh, I can't do anything because I have this debt and this debt's keeping me up at night. And I understand that debt is stressful. I've been in debt. We've all been there. But what if you diversify? What if you're making 50K and you have $40,000 in student loan debt and you can chip away at it? You can chip away and be stressed and let it keep you up at night. Or you can say, okay, I'm going to make the minimum payment. I'm going to refinance. I'm going to get this under control. And now I'm not going to worry about that. And in fact, I'm not going to worry about cutting all those little expenses in my life. I'm going to go out and build the skills to make more money because the net impact of me learning new skills is going to be hundreds of thousands, if not a million plus dollars over my lifetime, as opposed to sit here and staring at this anchor on my foot. You know, what if you can go out, like even in my case, I had over $20,000 in credit card debt when I got this job at the digital marketing agency. You know what I did when I sold that $50,000 project? I paid it off in one swoop. Boom, gone. Okay, no more anchor. I'm free. If I had sat around and was like, oh, I've got all this debt and it's so terrible. And that's the problem. Our country, we like to talk about debt. And yes, it's a problem, but don't let it be an excuse to ultimately live an amazing life. So I think we really have to shift the narrative around a couple key myths. And to completely change someone's mindset, you have to help them envision like something better. And so if you can say like, oh, like forget the budget, forget the debt. You know, and I say this in my book, it's like in the entire 300 plus page book, there's literally like one and a half pages on debt where I'm like, here's how to make the best mathematical decision check your emotions at the door. And now let's get on to more important things, which is making more money. And so, gosh, I just, people, they just, they put themselves in a box. And even though they like, you know, see that there's an out to the box, they don't even spend the time figuring out how to get out. And that's the thing, man, like you're only not going to make more money if you don't choose to make more money. And that's the thing. We, We also live in a world where we believe that we have to accept what we're getting paid you know, or we have to accept it, you know, oh, this is what I'm worth. I have a few money pet peeves and that's one of them. One of them is like, you know, know your worth. It's like, no, knowing your worth today is so dumb. Like (laughs) figure out where you want to go and then get, and then work to get there. You know, if I say like, I'm worth $72,500 and I'm chipper, everything's great. It's like the status quo, man. It's like, you sit around and wonder why you're kind of unhappy with your life. It's because you've accepted what someone's paying you. And this is the other thing, man, is like of like capitalism, the way it works is your boss and your boss's boss and your company, they're trying to pay you as little as possible. Even if they're nice, even if they like you, oh, our office has free food, our office has a gym, our office has all these things. You know what all that is? That's just a distraction to distract you from the fact that 
your company is making five or six times what you're getting paid on your on your time. And every company is just a legal pyramid scheme and people at the top make the money and don't buy into the fact that you've got to wait around for three years with a carrot dangling in front of you and that climbing the ladder is actually worth it. In a vast majority of cases, it's just not worth it because as you climb the ladder, you get paid more money, but the expectation of you grows exponentially. And that's why you meet these like law firm partners who are making 400K and they're stressed out all the time and they look terrible and their families don't like them, you know, and they're unhappy. And, you know, it's because, oh, I got to partner and I'm making money. But it's like, yo, your life sucks. And the reason it sucks is because you like the expectations on you is so high. It only it's a pyramid. It only benefits a very, very select few. I mean, I know some of the most successful managing partners and partners at consulting firms all around the country. And every single one of them, the partners at BCG and Accenture and Deloitte, all these places that are coveted by MBAs, they're all miserable, man. They're all, they're all either miserable or they spend so much time traveling for work that they're not truly living. You know, I see it. And then they're like, you know, they get to a point where they're 45 and, you know, they have an unhappy relationship and they don't really know their kids and they might have a lot of money, but the trade-off that they have made is just massive and don't buy into the hype. And I wish there was a way to be like, that is not going to make you happy. You know, I wish I could tell every 18 year old, like I go and talk to these MBA programs sometimes and like, they're so bright eyed and they're like, want to all go into consulting and they want to all be entrepreneurs. And like, I come in with, for some people, what's really a buzzkill. And for what's other people, it's really hopeful. It's a buzzkill for the people who like think they're going to climb their way all to the top. I'm like, yeah, you might do that in 25 years. You might. I mean, it's, it's not a meritocracy. The best doesn't rise to the top. How you're judged is often very abstract and you don't know. And so you're waiting there wondering how you're being judged. And your boss is just in some room kind of knowing that, you know, it's, it's, all, it's like a, a con in a lot of ways. And I understand in some cases you got to pay your dues, you got to learn. But a lot of times companies just like dangle this carrot. I go off, man, on equity in the book. Equity is one of those things where it's like, oh, we're going to give you equity. Like, and it's just like, that's just another carrot. So you get a lot of people who stay around for seven years who are only going to get equity if a certain thing happens in a particular certain way. And then, you know, the bosses are either consciously or unconsciously just laugh into the bank because they've got you to stay there for seven years and they've paid you little to nothing with the hope that one day the company would sell and you would be a millionaire and then the company does sell and you've waited seven years and your stock ends up being worth, you know, $38,000 <laughs> and not millions. And that happens all, or even if the company gets sold, I just have a real heart, man, a real heart for people going into the corporate world who they don't really see what's going on. And so I'm really passionate about helping people see because I've been through it all. Here's what's actually going on. So at one point, you know, you got to talking about how a lot of the information out there is kind of the same. A lot of it is just about, you know, maybe giving up those things that are actually making you happy. I mean, I don't think that I necessarily have gotten into that point where I'm giving up things that make me happy, but I, I do think that a large part of my journey has been focusing on being efficient with my spending and not as much on the earning as it probably should be. Some of that probably comes from growing up a little on the, the poorer side of things and having a scarcity mindset. But I'm curious, I know you have some views on when that goes too far and this idea of like money addiction and it been a different way of addiction and how we're kind of over-optimizing our money to a point of deprivation. That's a great question. And I think it's a 
bigger question on are we over-optimizing our entire lives and money being one piece of that. And I think it's one thing to want to get the most out of every moment in life, but the paradox is very hard to do that when you use like a performance planner and you schedule every 10 minutes of your day. I would argue that like, you know, even the really successful people, when you look at their calendars and their assistant, you know, and I had an assistant for a long time and like, I didn't even know what I was doing some days until I got in and my assistant told me, you've got this, this 30 minutes and that meeting and this. And my calendar was like back to back to back to back to back to back. And so much of life actually happens like, you know, when you open up to it, when you breathe, when you don't know, when you're uncertain, when you let go of trying to pack everything in. How many times have you been in a conversation and then you have to stop a really good conversation because you have another call or you have another meeting? Or how many times do you not really get into the marrow of life because you got to go do something else? And this is one of the things like Europeans think about time in this way very differently than we do in the United States. You know what I mean? Like if you're having a good conversation in Spain, like you're sitting down, you're not going to show up to those next three meetings. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> like life is here right now. You know, it's not. And that's one of the things I think we as Americans, you know, we have this you know Protestant ethic, which is very much like I'm going to do and optimize every moment of my day and everything. But that in turn is actually trapping us from truly living in many areas of our life. And going back to money, I was completely addicted to money and optimization during my FI journey, 100%. I should have been hanging out with my friends more. I lost certain friendships. I should have been doing so many different things that I didn't all in the pursuit of becoming FI. In hindsight, looking back, you know, it's always 2020. I realized that I had so much of the freedom already that I was craving. I just didn't even recognize it. You know, I didn't have anyone in my life that pointed and was like, yo, you know, you've got half a million dollars saved. Why don't you chill out a little bit? You know what I mean? Like, I wish someone would have told me that, you know, like I didn't feel that way. I had half a million dollars and I was like, I'm, I'm so close. Like I'm almost there. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you would have thought I like had nothing when I was already so free. And so it becomes an addiction in another form when, when you're no longer growing. And this is one of the things I think to be human to me, the purpose of life is to be fully alive. And fully alive doesn't mean happy all the time. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean fully optimized. But once again, what alive means is personal. So for me, being structured, that structured stressed me out. You know, for you, maybe being that structured excites you and empowers you. Maybe a cold, habit stacking and a cold shower and you know, the green juice and the five minute meditation and, you know, all these habits that maybe that works for you. But I think a lot of people, we're in a world now that's telling everyone to do that and not saying, hey, this might not work for you. This is for a very particular type of person. And then the other pet peeve to that is we live in a world now that's like, find your why or what, what's your calling, or what's your passion, or what's your purpose, or what makes you happy. And everything in our world is like telling us, like, follow our passion. And it's like, I didn't know what my passion was at 24, at 25. I didn't know my purpose in life. I didn't know, in a lot of cases, even what made me happy. I didn't figure all those things out until I had the time and space to do so. 
And to me, I didn't figure those things out. You can't like chase a passion. You know, you can't, what happens is like, it comes to you, you know, you arrive at it or it arrives. We live in this world where like, we're telling 18 year olds, like follow your passion or eight, you know, and what happens is like, they're like, oh, I like playing Fortnite and, and just like chilling out. Like, great. Like, I'm just going to do this and not go to, you know, whatever. When in reality, we should be telling people that your passion is out there. Get out, like just open to the world. You don't know where it's going to show up. Part of the beauty of life is not knowing, not knowing. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in my life next year at all. And to me, that's super exciting because I know it's going to blow my mind in so many ways, both good and bad. And I feel very grateful that I'm in that position, but you can be in that position, you know, even if you're not FI. And so stop asking people what their why is and start supporting them in getting the freedom to figure it out. Because most people don't know. And when you ask someone that who doesn't know, I remember being asked this at 25, like, you know, what's your passion? You know, what's... And, and I was like, you know, I, I didn't, I was like making money. I don't know. Like, you know, like, what, <laughs> you know, Chipotle, what, like, you know, and for me, my passion and my purpose, it didn't show up. It, it's like, it showed up and you gotta, you gotta let yourself live a little bit. If I had a wish, I wish everyone could have like one year of expenses saved. And then they would take like, if they really love their job and they're really happy, then they just keep going. But if you arrive at that point where you have one year of expenses saved, you need to stop and look around and say, okay, I'm taking six months off and I'm just going to exist. And I don't know necessarily what I'm going to do. And this is why I always recommend my tree exercise. And I still do this to this day. I'll schedule on my calendar on Sundays. You know, I'll just go like lay under a tree in a park expecting nothing you know, and giving, giving yourself permission to do nothing. And that's the thing, man, hustle, 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 hustle only works for a very small number of people. And for the rest of the people, they're looking around like, why am I not hustling as hard as him? Why did I not get there? You know, why did I not, you know, why did I not, oh, I can't do that. And then they end up feeling bad when not everyone should or can or needs to be an entrepreneur. And yeah, I wish there was just that counter narrative. And that's, I've tried to do that in the book too. I'm like, yo, I am like a really extreme example of this thing. And you get all the benefits of this so much earlier than I did because I didn't even realize the benefits. And in fact, I probably wouldn't have gone so hard. And I say this all the time to people. They ask me, they're like, whoa, you know, and I'm like, Literally in my entire life, and you know, you'll learn this, Cody, on the road. Like, money and maybe writing are like the only things that I'm really good at. Maybe playing guitar, but it's like, you know, I don't fold my laundry. There's like, <laughs> you know, my wife's out of town, and there's like piles of mail and cups and coffee cups. I literally have four coffee cups on this desk and papers and post-it notes everywhere and plastic on the floor and I haven't folded my clothes in five days. I haven't made the bed. You know, I probably shot. <laughs> I did shower today. I definitely didn't yesterday. You know what I mean? Like I'm not like, this is true. It's like, I'm, but I accept that about myself. You know, I love who I am because you only have so much time and paradoxically, if you schedule all of your time, 
that works for some people that doesn't work for me that more stresses me out than anything else because you know you only have so much energy and the reason i was able to do this is because now i'm in my life phase where there's no line between work and life like this is my life purpose this is my mission you know so hanging out here i've been up since 3am doing interviews all day i'm still energetic because this is my life this is not my work this is like my being this is my true self and so how do you set up your life to be in that situation and forget about the money in a lot of cases forget about the money like pursuing fi is a noble goal but it should be far on the horizon until you have six months of expenses saved or a year of expenses saved. And even if you have a year and you're not happy, then you got to really stop and reevaluate. The happiest people I know in my life are often the ones who make the least amount of money, but they're doing something that is truly them. And that's tough. I mean, that's the life exists between these kind of dualities, between these polar opposites. And the more you can get comfortable with that, And also the more you can get comfortable with accepting yourself for who you are, faults and all. I know that I'm messy. I know that I struggle with self-care. I know that I have, you know, I know all these things about myself and I could get all stressed out about them, but I also know that I have a really creative mind and I love to create. I feel very inspired and I feel very grateful for what I'm doing. And so find those things in your life that you enjoy doing and just try to build your life so that you can do more of that no matter what that is. And then finally realizing that no matter what you do or how much money you have or where you live or where you came from, that you're enough. And that's the thing. It's like how much is enough isn't about the money. It's about being at peace with yourself, no matter where you are. And we live in a world, you know, I've lost a number of friends to suicide and we live in a world that tells people who are doing certain jobs that are, they're not enough or people who don't have money that they're not enough. And I want to encourage all of us, especially in the FI community to, even when we share our numbers, even when we get excited about our goals to remember that even if we're not there, or even if you're not even close, you're already enough. Like just the fact that you woke up this morning that we're alive is just such a beautiful gift. And that was one of the things that I didn't realize until I got through this process. And I just hope that becoming FI in five years was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was insane. It was crazy. It was, I, I, I shouldn't have gone in as intensely. And I wish that no matter where you are in your own financial journey, don't be stressed out about where you are. Be grateful for where you already are because you already have so much more than so many other people. And just listening to this, means you have an opportunity that many people don't. And, you know, I hope that that at least comes through in the book and our missions and the numbers are easy. Making money, once you master, it's easy. Truly living and helping others to live. You know, we only get one shot at this and we're all in this together. And the more that I grow and the more I realize that we're all one. And so helping others is is really the truly truly the way to live. And I hope that FI helps more people help others, not just themselves. Grant, I have a tactical question. So we've kind of been talking about this at a higher view, like a 10,000 foot view, kind of the philosophy behind life, just happiness, meaning, purpose. But man, some people just feel so trapped. They're in a dead end job. They can't make ends meet. 
how do they actually take a step back and really, like, on a tactical level, find that meaning or that purpose when they're grinding? Maybe they have a second job after their day job. They just don't even have the time to think. I'd love if you could talk about some strategies or habits that someone like that could develop. So you got to get to level I call, in the book. It's level three of financial freedom, which is breathing room. You got to be able to like breathe. We're all in such pressure cookers in our lives, and so if you're really stressed out and sad or unhappy, that is your body and your mind telling you that something is wrong. It's a friction point in your life, and you need to escape that friction point to see clearly. And it's very tough to make decisions about your future when you're in a constriction point or, you know, I like to call it a compression phase. It's like very hard to see clearly when you're in that spot. And so you got to escape and get to your breathing room. And for most people, that breathing room is going to be the six months to one year of expenses saved. It's going to be enough money that you're able to get out of that really stressful situation, whether it's like not enjoying your job, your boss, or where you're living. And so that should be priority number one, above all else, above going to you know Coachella, above going to Europe, above all those things. If you're feeling that stress in your life, yes, you have a choice. Okay, I'm going to, you know, I have no money saved, but I'm going to blow my $800 paycheck and go to this festival. And I'm going to be really happy in the moment. Or I can choose to not have that experience and put it towards breathing room. And the net impact of breathing room is going to be massive over time. And it's hard to get breathing room when you have no breathing room. It's like, you know, you're ever in in like a train car and the AC is broken and it's really, really hot. You just want to like, you just, you know, you just, you like start feeling weird and start feeling bad. You just want to bust out. You know, you got to bust out and get some air and that's having enough money to do that. Also, it's really never been easier to take an extended amount of time off, you know, even taking a month off or two months off with that type of breathing room can be really helpful. You can say mental health now, thankfully, is being more and more talked about. And if you're having those challenges, save up some money, talk to your boss and say, hey, I need to take some time off. If they fire you, good riddance to them. They didn't deserve you. And that's one of the things, sometimes getting fired can be one of the best things that will ever happen to you in your life because then you're forced to take a risk instead of just staying comfortable. And that's one of those things too, man. On the other side, so that's people who are constricted and they're stressed out about their life. On the other side are the people who are happy enough. You know, the people who are like making good money, getting up every day, going to their job, but there's that deep stirring in them. That, you know, I could be doing more. I could be, there's something more out there for me. And those are the people that I worry about more than the constricted people. Because I say in the book, you know, ease and convenience are the enemy of financial independence. The whole world now, technology is designed, capitalism is designed to increase efficiency and ease and convenience. And so you're climbing up a hill. And so you get that paycheck and you're doing all right but you don't feel like you're truly living. And the way to get out of that situation is you've got to wake up and realize that you can always go back in life. You know, you can always, the skills you have, if you're an accountant or working graphic design, whatever you're doing, you can always go back to that. There's always going to be someone who will hire you to do that. 
what you might not be able to do is escape because jobs like that, they become pits because then you get another bonus and then you get another raise and maybe you get free food, you know, (laughs) and you're like, Oh, this is okay. Life isn't meant to be okay. You know, life is meant to be extraordinary. And so the further you get down in that pit, then the harder it gets to climb up. And all of a sudden you've been in that pit for 10 years and you no longer see the light. You no longer see the top. And the worst thing of all is in 10 years, those dreams you had, you no longer have. And that's the thing, man. You wake up at 45 and you wanted to be all these things and then you no longer want those things. And that's the saddest thing of all because you could have tried to get those things early on and you can always go back. You know, I like, I, I really, really feel like I'm a student of like stuckness, you know, trying to figure out how to get people unstuck. And one of the things I realize is people in that situation, you're often only two or three steps away from a life that you'd really love. And often one or two of those steps is money related, getting breathing room. And then the other step, is just letting yourself fall, you know, and letting yourself not know for a while because not knowing for a while and just floating and just existing, what's going to happen when you open to the world, things are going to open to you in a way that you've never even imagined. You're going to have, you're going to be open and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And you're going to have a conversation with someone at a coffee shop and they're going to tell you about their brother who has an art gallery on the West side who needs help, you know, throwing this event. And then you're going to meet someone at that event that night who, you know, is a painter who lives in Miami, who needs some help throwing their gallery. And all of a sudden you're in the art world in Miami and you're sitting on a yacht and there's Rick Ross and there, you don't know. No, <laughs> but, you know what it is. but if you really want to live, like you really want to live in Miami and you're stuck in Charlotte, North Carolina and you're, 70k job and you're feeling okay but you're young enough where you could you know you could always go back to that shipping job and you really want to go to miami pick up save get breathing room and move to miami move to miami not knowing what you're going to do in miami don't have a job lined up don't know and just show up there and start talking to people and start feeling it out because what's going to happen is once you like you start decompressing you start shedding all that stress that you had from being in that hole. And then you start to feel the wind, you know, and then you start to breathe and you start to see clearly. And all of a sudden you see things that you never saw before. And you have dreams that you never had before. And life is so much richer simply because you've taken the time to open to it as opposed to just accept the status quo. And that's my thing, man. It's like, are you truly living? Kind of bouncing off of that, I just had one last thing I wanted to cover that is a point I'd heard you bring up before that I just, I don't know, it hit me pretty hard. It was really interesting. You talk about, you know, a lot of people who are maybe complacent and they're living these same experiences over and over and how maybe what they truly want to do, you know, they should go after and live those new experiences and how that ties into, you know, the length of our life, not from a a true time perspective, but our perceived time perspective. Because I know you'd mentioned one time about how these studies about someone when they're seven years old and when they're 26 years old, and these pivotal points in your life. And I don't know if you could just go over that real quick for us. Yeah. So the studies show that your perception of time changes, obviously, as you get older. There are some nuances to this. 
people in the West think very differently about time than people in the East. In some cases, it's even country-specific. Like in Malagasy culture in Madagascar, people believe that your future is actually behind you. You know, there's all these like really <laughs> cool nuances. People are all different. It's it's crazy. But in the United States, in the Western world, perception of time, that acceleration of existence, it occurs at a few rapid accelerations at a few moments. The first is when you're seven years old. Oftentimes when you're seven, there's a confluence of factors where you realize your mortality for the first time. And also because you've already had at least half of all the human experiences that you're going to have in your life. So those new things, time starts to accelerate. And then it happens again, typically when you're in your mid-20s, around 26, there's another acceleration point where you feel like compression because you've already had over eight, or this is the average person. This is important to know. The average person, you've already had over 80% of the new experiences that you're going to have in life. And so much of life is based around the newness. Like that's one of the reasons, you know, you go and you're traveling and everything seems like time slows down the first couple of days of vacation. That's because literally our minds are like little computers. They're trying to process everything in front of them. And so time slows down because your perception of reality changes because your, your body, your mind is literally taking more in. That's why we often feel so alive when we're traveling because we're forced to take more of life in and our senses are more heightened. And so that's one of the attractivenesses of travel is because it makes us feel that way and very hard to feel that way when you're waking up every day and because you're in the routine, you've turned off that color and all of a sudden your life, that brightness, it gets duller. You know, it's like a color schematic and time, even for me now at 34, I haven't felt as rapid of an acceleration as I felt when I was 26, but time to me is very different because now I can wake up and do whatever I want. And it's interesting because time to me feels less linear and more kind of like a lake, like I'm existing as opposed to just like moving forward. And that's like, that's a whole nother thing to be dissected. I think that's an awesome input because it's, you know, with, with financial independence and, and this whole idea of, of being independent, it's yes, you're wanting to like technically maybe shorten how long you you have to work for someone else or all that. But it's also about opening up that part that you're trying to make free for yourself. And, and not only are you making that part of your life physically longer, but mentally, you know, you're getting to really experience it and it doesn't just blow by because you're doing the same thing every day. And so that's why I just thought it was cool to, to kind of get people to, to think through that and to do that thought experiment at home. And I'm glad you covered that for us. The other thing is like, you have to think about pursuing FI that there's always a pause button. We're taught that like we have to increase our savings rate and they have to keep growing. But sometimes exactly the thing you need is just to push pause on all of that and put FI in a box and then put it on a shelf for a while and be like, okay, I got to a year of expenses saved. I'm going to put you on the shelf for a while. And this next year, I'm going to take off and just exist and I'll come back to you. You know, it doesn't mean you go crazy, but I'm going to come back to you later because I have more important work, which is figuring out what kind of life I want to live and then I can go back and I'm going to see money clearer because I'm going to know how much money I need to live that life. You know what I mean? And that, this is something well beyond like a mini retirement. Mini retirement is like, all right, I'm going to go back to this thing. And 
being like, okay, I got to, it's like climbing. It's like, okay, I got to this point in the mountain and now I'm just going to stop for a while and walk around the mountain and look out in the vista and see what I see. And we're, we're not ever told that that's okay. We're always told that we have to be moving forward or getting better or progressing or saving more or increasing or accelerating. And crazy thing is like financial freedom. The book I wrote is all designed to get you there as fast as possible. The pause button is not in the book. You know, I didn't write that book. That's another book. But thankfully, I can talk about it because you need a pause button. You know, as far as I go in the book, I say just like, you got to you know chill as hard as you hustle. But that's not like, yo, if this like, if you see like, or you're confused, or you need to take some time off from this. That's cool, too. Life is always more important, always more important than money. And sometimes not knowing is the best thing. Not knowing in life, like I've found, is better than knowing. I totally agree. It's like knowing what you're getting for your birthday or Christmas. You don't want to know. <laughs> it's so much better when it's a surprise. Exactly. So it's like, do you want to know that next November you're going to be sitting in this same desk and the foam in your desk chair is going to be a little bit more matted down <laughs> and there's going to be a few more things on your cubicle wall. And that's fine. I'm not saying that you, I'm not saying like you have to go out and live this extraordinary life, but you need to define what that means to you. And you might be sitting in your office or going to work and be like, I love my job and I love my life and I love my friends and I love everything around me. And if that's the case, you've already won the game. And a lot of people too, gosh, I need to write this down. Like, it's like the third thing. It's like you have the people who, you know, are really stuck and don't know what to do. You have the people who are really kind of and stressed and you have the people who are stuck and they're stuck in their ease and their convenience. And then you have like another bucket of people who are already happy, but they're stressed out because they think they're not progressing as far as everyone else is. And I do, I know this too. I meet people who, They've got the happy spouse and they've got the, or the great partner and they've got a little bit of money and they've got a great house and a community and a family and a dog and a job they like. And they're still really stressed out because they feel like they don't have enough money. And you're like, yo, dude, you've already, you've already won the game. Like this is, this is it. This is life. Congrats. You, you're here. Enjoy it. Just enjoy your life. Like, what are you stressed out about, man? You know, it's like the three personalities of, people of stress <laughs> three personalities of stress yeah there you go <laughs> new you book post off that <laughs> yeah no i mean but that's that's like a sub segment i actually feel very grateful for the ability to do all these podcasts because everything that i think really matters about money is in the book you should read the book that's what i think about money the real fun stuff is what i can talk about beyond that or around that or before that and that's the cool thing about the podcast because it's forcing me and helping me think about the best way to kind of take this further, which I'm most excited about. Just talking about the tactics, you can you can read the book for that. I mean, the book is a manual. It's a roadmap. That's what it is. All this other stuff we're talking about, it's the color that's around it. You know, it's the space of life. It's the, Vicky and I like to call it the space of freedom. You have to exist in it. So Grant, before we kind of get into the last couple of questions here, just in the interest of time, is there anything that we haven't really talked about that you'd like to share with the listeners? I mean, the only other thing, and I've mentioned it a little bit, is that 
if you're listening to this, you're probably excited about becoming FI. People talk to me because I've become FI and they want to learn how to become FI. If you want to become FI, everything that I learned and thinks important to get you there is in Financial Freedom, my book at financialfreedombook.com. What's more important though is figuring out that first part of the question, not how much money do you need, but what kind of life do you want to live? And if you have a partner, this is one of those things, you know, I know people are out there and you're fired up about this and excited, but your partner's not quite on board or your wife or they're not on board. And maybe you're sneaking blog posts to them, or maybe you're going to get my book and like casually leave it out on the kitchen table. You know, there's all these things that you can do, (laughs) but the one thing that you should do is instead of sitting down the next time with your partner and running through the numbers and looking at your budget, start with, okay, let's just get a blank sheet of paper. What kind of life do we want to live? Do we want to live? Let's envision that. Let's talk about that. Where do we want to live? What do we want to be doing with our free time? What do we want to be doing for work? Where do we want to be? Who do we want to be with? And, you know, this isn't that like set your intention wishy-washy stuff, not to hate on that. Intentions are important or like your vision board. What it is is sitting down and being like, let's talk about our life. Where in our life do we wish we were living more? And then follow with, okay, how can we best set up our financial life to live that life that we want? And maybe you really want a lake house in five years. And then you know that and you agree that you both want that then it makes the decisions today so much easier because you know what you're saving for or working towards. It's not a number. It's like a life. It's a vision of a life. So that's what I encourage you to do. And then the other thing is just no matter where you are, like you don't need to become FI to live a super dope life. I mean, you, you'll get there. It might take you a while. You'll get there eventually. Don't put off living your life, doing the things that you want to do cutting those small purchases that make you happy, find the balance and then realize that everything in life is a trade-off. It's just a trade-off. If you want to do this today, just realize what you're trading for it. And the better you get to know yourself, the better you truly kind of exist and open to the world, the easier those trade-offs become. And then they're no longer trade-offs. They're just built into who you are then you don't have to think twice about not buying that thing because that thing is not you. So Grant, this has been an awesome episode. I was really pumped about doing this when I started hearing you on other podcasts and reading your story because I love all the philosophy stuff. But obviously, we didn't cover everything about your story or or even all your money things. So if people want to learn more about your story or they want to get in contact with you, where are the best places they can go? Yeah. So check out financialfreedombook.com. You can learn all about my book, Financial Freedom a proven path to all the money you will ever need. To be honest, you know, I've written over 300,000 words and tons of posts about money on millennial money, but now all that stuff doesn't really matter as much. Like the book is so much better (laughs) than the blog in every way, in every facet, clearer, better written, more organized, more comprehensive, easier to understand. So read the book. Uh, Seriously, it's worth the $13.99 on Kindle or $15 hardcover. It's totally worth that. It's high ROI. Probably don't even have to read the blog posts. So check it out. I'm not just saying that. If you buy the book, I'll go on a limb and you are unhappy with it. Reach out to me because I definitely want to know why. And, you know, 
I might give you your money back because I really want you to be satisfied with this purchase. Find me at Millennial Money on Twitter. Sometimes it's a little hard to get in touch with me, but best way now that I found oddly is message me at Financial Freedom on Instagram because there's a whole lot going on there. And yeah, that's the, the best place to reach me and read the book and let me know what you think and then share it with everyone you know. All right, man. Well, we'll definitely link to all that stuff in the show notes so people can find you, connect with you, buy the book and just get all this awesome information. And so one thing we like to ask all of our guests is if you just had to share one tip for someone who is on the path to financial freedom, what would that tip be? Make sure you take time to breathe. Love it. And we definitely covered that a lot in this episode. I was curious what you're going to spit out there. Artie Grant, here comes the last part of the interview. You're not ready for it. I know Cody's not ready for it. He has no idea what's coming. This is the wild card question. You ready? Let's do it. No, you're not. Okay. <laughs> so the wild card question today is, because I know that you're going on the road with Cody, living in a van with a man, I want to know, if you're a betting man, what is the most likely thing that Cody is going to do to get him kicked off of this van? Oh, jeez. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> okay, throwing up in the van would be one, probably, because the van is precious to me. Losing the keys... If we if he loses the keys and we can't get anywhere, not being back at the van in time for us to actually leave for the next city, soccer mom status, yeah, just no, like straight, no, just straight up like disappearing. <laughs> I mean, we don't know, you know, who we're gonna meet or what's gonna go down or where we're gonna be. So, you know, if we've got to drive to the next city and he's not there, I might leave him, and then you got to <laughs> find your way to the next city. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. Nice co-host I got, right? That's fine. I mean, at least you know. Now it's all full transparency what the, what the rules are. Yeah, if you get kicked so. off now, it's your own fault. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. Everyone out there, join us. 40-plus cities, driving around. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so fun. I'm pumped, man. And the book is awesome for everyone out there who is thinking about buying it. I have read it multiple times now, and it's just like a the roadmap when someone says, what's FI all about? This is what you hand them. I think you've read it more than I have. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So like I was saying, man, just so pumped for this next year going on the road together and spreading this financial freedom message. And it's clear that you had this mission to write this book. I mean, all the stuff that we've talked about in this podcast today is just so transformative, not only about money, just about mindset, philosophy, and life. So it's no wonder that you sat down and spent, what was it? 2,800 hours of your life writing this book. Yeah. A long, a long, long time. So just want to give you a huge shout out for coming on the podcast today. And yeah, thanks so much for spreading your wisdom. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for all you guys do. And it's going to be fun. And man, we're, just, we're all just getting started. That's the really cool thing is obviously this is all spreading. People are excited for it. And more than anything, financial independence should be available to all. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. 
Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available. The very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.